Hello and welcome to At The Source. I'm Alex and this is Karis. This is a podcast about food stories. We love talking about food and eating it. And now we're on a mission to record and share interesting food stories from people all over the UK and beyond. Join us as we explore food in all its glory. Hello and welcome to At The Source. We're coming to you from our camper van recording studio at Abergavenny Food Festival and we're delighted to be sat here with Bea Wilson. Bea needs no introduction, but we'll give her one anyway. She's a historian, she's a BBC Food Writer of the Year, author of five books and chair of Taste Ed, which helps children engage with and enjoy their food. Bea, it's a real honour. Thank you so much for taking time out to come and chat with us. We have to start with our usual question. What is your first memory of food? Mm, this is so hard. I... I just don't think I can remember my first memory of food, which sounds like a really stupid thing to say, but I can, I do have lots of dotted childhood memories. I, one of the things I remember, I was obsessed with butter, but I'm still kind of slightly obsessed with butter. That's a good thing to be obsessed with. And I remember maybe, I, I can't think how old, maybe I was five, maybe I was six, just sitting with my sister and each being given a baked potato for dinner and having the butter on the table in front of us and just me suddenly thinking how much butter can I physically mash into this potato before it kind of just <laughs> stops being a potato and I partly remember that because I remember being told off then really badly like somebody like my dad telling me that was very silly and I needed to stop doing it so that's kind of half a good memory <laughs> the point at which I was just the mashing the is mashing. so stereotypical of children isn't it when you kind of yes. you mix all your food together until it just turns into this really thick lumpy I think I've got smush. lots of memories to do that and also kind of being given um my mum always calls it cottage pie not shepherd's pie although it's quite debatable what what mm. the line is between those two but having my cottage pie and then having some ketchup and then kind of do I make the mashed potato pink? Do I pour the ketchup all over the meat part and kind of make that really... T- like, mm. I think it's sort of those weird little experiments with food that you do around the edges as a child, isn't it? Where you It's a little bit of freedom. Yeah. Well, I remember ice cream as a kid. Mm. You'd always just Mixing mix it up. and mix it and mix until it was liquid. And now uh, I just think, gosh, melted ice cream's horrible. What but a waste. Kid, yes. It was just yeah. so good. Yes. And actually, no, I have got earlier memories than the potato one because I've got all of these memories to do with me and my sister because my sister was two years older and she was much cleverer and she was always kind of tricking me. Getting you into trouble. <laughs> and yeah, getting me into trouble. But there was this well, there was one memory, which actually I think I wrote about in one of my books, where we loved those custard tarts that you got with, you know, you still sell them, don't they, with nutmeg on top. But I mm. never, I would always go for a Portuguese custard mm, tart now. Yeah. Somehow the nostalgia value of that British custard tart has gone for me. But it used to be like, that was the best thing you could have. And we would eat them really, really slowly. And it'd be like, who could eat it the slowest? Because the best <laughs> bit is that soggy bit of pastry underneath the custard. You kind of nibble around the edge. Mm. Then you eat the nutmeggy part on top. Then you kind of slowly eat your way round. Then you have the disc of pastry. And usually I was kind of greedier than my sister. So I'd eat mine quicker but on one day she just kind of went out of the room and then came back in and said I finished mine and I was like oh great I've won I ate mine really quickly and then she came back in with an uneaten custard tart so that's as the eldest I that sounds like the kind of things that I used to do but I was thinking when you said ice cream that also just triggered I think there's that thing of like you're trying to eat your ice cream cone very very slowly Mm. and then there's a point where you kind of just use your tongue to kind of push the ice cream down into the cone and how Mm. far do you go with that and then do you kind of nibble the bottom of the cone and wait for it to drip out 
Or, but you can't do it too soon or it will start going down your arm and off your elbow and then your yes. mum will shout at you like yeah. what are you doing stop playing with your food and the ultimate childhood disappointment of that thing where you've been given an ice cream cone and it falls off <laughs> yes. mm. yeah I think we've all been there at least yeah, once and at you'll least never once. eat ice cream at the beach again no <laughs> and there's that thing of whether the ice cream vendor is kind enough to give you a second one some of them are Ooh. some of them aren't Yes. I wonder. I wonder if it's anything to do with how much you remind them of their own child or someone that they know, and they just feel a bit. <laughs> yeah, oh, I think kid. some of them probably just have a business policy, don't they? I can see it would be annoying. It would really cut into your profits. If, well, yeah, yeah. If people keep dropping their, and ice then you've creams. got the cheeky children who will just kind of eat it quick, and then be say, "Oh, sir, my ice cream dropped on the floor." <laughs> what came first for you then? So was it that love of food, or was the writing before, and then you just kind of realised actually, I love writing about food. I mean, the love of food definitely came first because I think love of food is just a basic human thing, isn't it? I mean, you do meet very rare people. When I was writing my book, First Bite, I interviewed some child psychologists who said, even at baby level, some people don't enjoy food as much as others, which I found really interesting. Mm. Some kids just don't enjoy their milk as much as other kids. That's fascinating because you assume that it's a kind of a a nurture thing or a cultural thing where it's food is part of your the situation that you grow up in exactly but actually it's, I, I do think it's, it's a lot i mean yeah i'm very very much on the side of nurture generally if you're going to say which is it nature or nurture i think it's nurture mm. but clearly nature plays a part but i was definitely i enjoyed food i really loved food um so i think that came first but the way in which i enjoyed food in my family from quite an early age was a lot to do with words because my mother shouldn't have a huge cookbook collection, but they were just all the cookbooks that she had were kind of in the kitchen next to the kitchen table. And she had Elizabeth David and she had Jane Grigson and she had Madda Jeffrey and Delia Smith was probably the one that she actually really cooked from mm. most of the time. And I would, I don't know, I feel like my, both my parents were out working a lot and I feel like a lot of my childhood was quite lonely and I would just sit at the kitchen table reading these cookbooks, just devouring these words and then going away and kind of baking huge batches of cheese straws or something so but I had no thought at that point oh that's what I'm going to do but I think the food always comes first but then I think now when people talk about being a food writer and people sometimes ask advice about how do I I have no idea how you become a food writer I couldn't (laughs) possibly advise somebody because I feel like I sort of fell into it through a series of accidents in terms of what I do now, I do think the writing's more important, strangely. Like, I think there are many, many people out there who adore food, who have a passionate feeling for food. But the point about food writing is it's communicating. Mm. So you could have a deep, deep, deep feeling, but if it can't come out of you, yeah. it's not writing. It's about having the skill to, to mm. kind of, yeah, share it and make it... Makes sense, I guess. Where did that start for you? Because there's writing, you know, obviously there's the, the reading and, and looking at it, but when you when you leave school and you go, uh, what, what do I do now? And you said it's a series of sort of happy yeah. accidents. So I didn't have a, a... Well, I suppose I was going to say I didn't have an intention of becoming a food writer. Actually, I sort of did because I started doing it really young. Like I, So I had a kind of first career as an academic, but alongside that... I did food writing almost like a hobby. Mm. So I um, I did a master's degree in the States and one of the papers I did for that was on early American food history. I just got so into it. I just thought, oh, this is amazing. Thomas Jefferson bringing Parmesan back to America. Wow. All of this stuff about early American cakes, different ingredients they had, ingredients they didn't have. 
I got fascinated by it. And at that point, I mean, food writing now has just become something completely else from what it was back mm. then. Like it felt like then, now, even Bake Off is really interested in food history, isn't it? Like, mm. food history is just a thing mm. that's become accepted. People are interested in it. You go around any National Trust house, going visiting the kitchens, big thing. Then it was really fringe. And I met, happened to meet an editor at a party and I said, why doesn't anyone write about food history? And she, their food writer, this was the New Statesman magazine, their food writer suddenly left and she said, I'll give you a chance. You can have a couple of columns. And if I like them, you can carry on. That's fantastic. Yeah, I feel so lucky. That, yeah. that was kind of my first little... But it was still a real hobby then. My main career was... My academic subject was nothing to do with food. I did political thought. So I never thought of it as the thing that I did. Yeah. It was just something that I found super interesting. And then I think I... I mean, I had my first child quite young. I was just 25 when I had him. And then suddenly trying to be an academic alongside getting home to give him a bath and bedtime was just impossible. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to miss out on all that. So it was a kind of a pragmatic decision that I was like, oh, there's this thing I can do where I just email something to somebody at any time of day or night. Or I checked, did I even email it then? Did I post my column? Like I'm thinking, <laughs> I have memories of actually putting, I think I, isn't that bizarre? I think I put my column in the post, first class. That sounds so stressful in today's world. The, I know. The, there's this one copy of it. It's, it's even just the thought of putting it into the letterbox and just hoping it gets there. Yes. I honestly did do that. And I don't think it kind of lost. And on a way, it was stressful. In another way, I look back and think, oh, you weren't available the whole time then. So it was kind of... You, you posted it off and then you really, you had a couple of days of anxiety thinking, is it going to get there? Will they like it? Mm. I mean, I still have that will they like it thing, mm. which I think both cooks and writers have, don't mm. they? Absolutely. Anytime I cook something, people come out, oh, I know, it's terrible. What can I cook? There is no food. There's nothing good enough. And with writing, it's a bit the same, that moment when you, yeah, do press send, hoping the editor's going to like it, but you just, you never really know. But yeah, so, so I fell into it, doing it alongside other stuff. And then, because of the kids, it seemed like... And then I realised I loved it. It's, it's funny, I think you sort of almost are doing something just for practical reasons. And then every so often I think, this is amazing. I get to write about one of the world's greatest subjects. Mm. And it has now changed. Like the kind of books and the kind of writing I do... In the early days, people say, what kind of writing do you do? And I always say, well, I don't really do recipes. I don't really do restaurants. And people look completely blankly. Well, like, what's left? What else could it be? What's left? Yeah. Yes, they, I know. They, they I know. Widen their they do. But, it, but this is how it's changed. Mm. I, people, that Those were the only two ways you could write about food. And I did have these comments from... Because, as I say, I had this first career as an academic and... The fellows of the college ride out would say, Oh, we've seen your little writing about casseroles. I think, oh, what, so I haven't. I know. So patronizing, but I love casseroles. So there's nothing wrong with a cookery column about casseroles. But as it happens, that wasn't what I was writing. So it was very strange. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've never written a column about it, but it's in their mind, it's like, this is a woman and she's writing about food. That's domestic. Mm, it must be yeah. recipes. It must be what our wives do, which we don't mm. pay any attention to at home because it's, it's I don't know. That's, I feel like that is dying. Do you yeah, I was going to say, has that changed? Ha somewhat? Hugely. Don't you think so? I mean, even just listening to what Asma Khan was saying this morning at the, the kind of the press welcome, you know, that's essentially what she was saying is that, mm. and I think there is a little bit of, 
bad stuff in the press at the moment with women not being able to lift pans in the kitchens and things like that, which yes. we won't dwell on. No, um, it does resurface. It, the battles have not all been mm. won. But there has been progress, hasn't there? It's just ridiculous. But yes, it's I, completely I would have, ridiculous. I would say that it definitely has moved forward, but perhaps isn't quite there yet. I think it's moved forward. I think then you have these kind of lags where you need to catch up, or you almost can't see how much progress has been made. Mm. And I think good change is often really slow, or it's slow to us because we're in the middle of it. Mm. Exactly, and it almost it. You need someone like Asma Khan to voice what's important and to do what's important. And then when you look at what she's doing, you think, yes, that's how the world should be. Mm. And I feel like other, I feel Nigella is a kind of unacknowledged mm. pioneer. Like I look back and that first book, which came out 20 years ago, or maybe it's 21 years now. And the way that she was saying, I'm not a chef and I'm not ashamed that I'm not a chef. Mm. I'm a domestic cook. Mm. And that that could be something in loads of ways better than being a chef. And totally unapologetic about doing home food. And I feel like she taught loads of men, including my own husband, um, <laughs> that cooking was something fun and it was something kind of creative and empowering and it wasn't emasculating. It wasn't mm. something that you had to show off doing. Um, that, you know, restaurant food's delicious and wonderful and we all love it's it. It's not for every day. That's it's definitely point. not for every yeah. day. As I look back to my early, after I got married, the kind of cooking I did, and I went on MasterChef. Actually, that was sorry, that was the missing part of my story. You were on MasterChef. I was on MasterChef. That's amazing. <laughs> yes, in fact, that's how I got the columns. I didn't just randomly. I said to her, "I'd really like to write this column," and then she was like, "What credentials do you have?" And I said, "I'm a MasterChef semi-finalist." And then, so that's the sort of bit that I don't mention. Oh, now we're going to need another episode <laughs> so I can ask you because one of my earliest food memories—not of eating food, but of being aware of and interested in food—it was when I was younger. My mum. And I would sit and watch MasterChef, the old MasterChef. Yes, Lloyd Grossman. With Lloyd Grossman in the coloured kitchens. Yes. And that's a really strong memory for me of watching a food programme and thinking, this is really cool. That is. Well, I loved watching it too. That's how I got on it. I loved watching it. And then my husband said, you love this so much. Why don't you just apply and see how far you get? Amazing. Yes, it was amazing. It was kind of very, very stressful. Like I now watch things like Bake Off and think I feel so sorry for them because Mm. just that thing of cooking in front of a camera and cooking when somebody's asking you to justify what you're doing and usually you're just in a kitchen kind of talking to yourself inside your own head and you're not having to explain I'm adding this for crunch I'm doing that and the other thing with the old master chef where I guess bake-off's different because at least they're just producing kind of one thing at a time mm. to produce a three-course meal is completely artificial mm-hmm. where each course is ready simultaneous You'd never do that either as a chef or as a home cook normally, would you? So it was the big thing was, I think it was the round that I lost, having a sorbet and thinking, how can I simultaneously get this fish course ready so it's piping hot and have the sorbet in a perfect, you know, those kind of overly quenelle shape that people used to do. I'm doing these hand signals here. Yes, (laughs) I'm doing hand signals too. I'm cupping my hands to show you how the sorbet had to look. Like, how can I get that sorbet so it's not going to be horribly over hard in the freezer but it's not going to melt and this is completely off off topic but i have to ask so master chef mm. so you have your three meals and mm. you each take it in turns to go up to the judges mm. so when the judges try those dishes they must be stone cold right mm. yeah they were i think so they photograph the quinella sorbet before it melts and then yes. probably when they try it it's a little yeah. ball of liquid yeah exactly i well, assumed I that, that was the flavor was all that counts 
I, th- I think, <laughs> I'm trying to remember, I think it was, it's such a long time ago. I think it was staggered. I think, I don't know. Did we, we can't have each got it ready. But then if we didn't get it ready at the same time, that wouldn't be fair, would it? Unless you started like a relay. Staggered. <laughs> yeah. You're right that it was all photographed very, very quickly. So that the kind of, yeah, mm. there was a version of the ice cream that looked good. But the one, yeah, I think it was pretty much stone cold. But also, it's kind of odd. You don't want to eat one three-course meal, then another, then another. Well, no. that's it's just so many things that you think what we see at the end, just you know that in the background is this mm. And I think it thing. kind of put me off that style of cooking altogether. Like, the other thing I just really remember with MasterChef, I feel like I nailed in my first round one, which kind of went really well. But it's... They're only having one spoonful. So you've got to make that spoonful completely sensational. Mm. But therefore, in real life, that dish would be hideously over-seasoned. You know, I quite like a dish, like a sort of lovely dish of sort of spinach ravioli with sage butter, where each mouthful tastes a bit the same. And it's borderline bland, but nicely... Do you know what I'm saying? It's it's comforting, but it's not an explosion of flavours in your mouth. But for something like MasterChef or Bake Off, it has to be be acidic and salty and strong and herbal and all of these things all at once. And that's not the way we eat. It's not really the way we eat, is it? There were some... I'm thinking back, thinking there were some really good things I made on... There was a mango and cardamom gratin that I made for Ooh. the... It was so, there was basically a Sophie Grigson recipe. And I... As soon as you... Everyone that does it says you, don't, you can't touch those recipes. And I'm now thinking, oh, enough time has elapsed. I should make that again. It was oh, good. Now I feel like I want mango and cardamom. Yeah, I do. It well. was so easy as well. You just It was just like mangoes, cardamom, creme fraiche. Must have been some sugar, I guess. Mm. That was that was not Master Chef-y, really. Sounds lovely. No, but mm. that's just... And I, I, I harp on about this, but simple mm. is just often better. Simple is often better. So is often is the way with At The Source. We have already steered off course. Oh, sorry. Um, no, no, I love it. It's fantastic. Mm. It's, we, we always kind of write our questions in the hope that they'll keep us on track, but then we always end up having mm. a, just a lovely conversation. So um, obviously you there are so many things that we could have chosen to talk to you about mm. today but I think because we're here at Abergavenny we're going to focus on um, the things that you're here talking to people about so eating well with a family in the modern age um, I know that's a topic that you're really kind of passionate about and mm. um, we're also going to touch on taste ed this is a bit of a difficult question I think um, so you tackle some really big topics in your writing I mean in your most recent book um, the way we eat now you talk about how food has never been this confusing and the importance of understanding what our food is and where it came from um so with all of that in mind this is a beast um what do you think is the biggest challenge facing families in terms of food yeah i think it depends on the family doesn't it it's but it's it's really really hard the word that's instantly coming to my mind, which, I mean, one of the chapters in my latest book, which is called The Way We Eat Now, is called Out of Time. And I think time is just a huge one. Finding time for food. Like so much of what's gone wrong with our eating mm. is down to not having the time. So if you're talking about families and kids, I mean, this is beyond family's control, but so many schools do not allow, allow adequate time for a lunch hour. Mm. So you've got kids kind of queuing up 
being really jostled in a great hurry then they get to the front of the queue and they're a bit like the rabbit in the headlights and they're choosing something very quickly and there have been studies done showing you know, each 10 minutes you add to the lunch hour determines whether a child's going to choose vegetables or not which sounds crazy but if you know that you've only got five minutes you're not going to go for that main course with the vegetables you're going to go for either the sandwich or mm-hmm. a plate of chips chips because that you can get that down and you can eat it and that's mm. it, it i find it shocking that children are having to make really important decisions about how to feed and nourish themselves and get through an afternoon of, for me i mean school dinners were just some i didn't always enjoy school sometimes I did sometimes I didn't you know sometimes I had hideous friendship issues going on but that meal that that was like a highlight it was just something that should be comforting especially if the dinner ladies were nice and smiled at you but the thought that we've reached a point where we think food isn't important enough to give it time so I think that plays out in thousands of different ways in family life and I think just finding the time to sit around a table together is one of the biggest challenges And I think it's really important we don't beat ourselves up and imagine that there's some perfect time in the 1950s when there was some amazing nuclear family and they sat down to roast dinner every night because that clearly is not the case. And even for those families where it were the case when I was writing my book, I mean, lots of these anecdotes didn't go in, but I was obsessively asking all of my friends for their childhood memories of how things were different with food growing up. One of my friends said, oh yeah, my mum, she was a teacher, but she always had food on the table. And she was just describing what her mum went through, even as a working woman, to get that dinner on the table. And she'd dash back from school at lunch hour, prep half the vegetables and make the pudding. Then she'd get the children home from school. Then she'd do the rest of the cooking. And then her husband would just go off to the golf club in the evening, leaving her to do the washing up. And I thought, well... Sounds like a nice chef. Yes. I mean, (laughs) I thought, well, that's a very nice meal for everyone but at what cost I mean that comes back again to the Asma Khan question doesn't it so what are the challenges facing families I think the challenge is how do you make time for food but how do you make time for food in a way that kind of keeps you sane and sort of finding this sense of balance because there are all of these blaring messages out there about health, about guilt, Mm -hmm. about things we should and shouldn't eat. And I think that message often actually directs us in exactly the wrong direction. One of the things I was staggered to find was that um, on the American market in total, it's going to be similar here, 4,000 varieties of snack bar, you know, like protein bars, which people think of as a health food. Just eat Mm. an apple. (laughs) Yes, just eat an apple. But But only one variety of banana. And it's like... This is kind of madness because we we don't allow ourselves the cookie, so we eat the protein bar instead because it says protein and it says fibre and it says good, you know, there were ones marketed very cynically for kids and then there were ones marketed very cynically for women and there are ones marketed for bodybuilders. And I feel that's just a bizarre thing that we put our faith in this thing that has a label telling us it's healthy and... We don't use our own senses to judge food. So that was a very long answer and it doesn't really tell you what to do. But I think reconnect with food and make time for it sometimes when you can. I think it's about priorities, isn't it? Because mm. we we are now so connected to the world around us that we always have to be somewhere. We always have to be doing something. Um, I don't know about anyone else who has a like a full-time job or whatever, but I check my work emails of an evening quite often it, it means that I'm, I'm never really truly switching off and yes. my priorities change mm. so 
where where food at one point was really important it's it's now kind of gone down the, the priority list and i think it's it's the same for it's making a point <laughs> no but you you made the point i completely agree with that and i think the saddest thing is that the cooking that we've allowed to drop down our priority list is exactly the antidote that we need to this mad, stressed out, screen obsessed world that we're all living in. Because mm. those times when you do allow yourself to be at a chopping board with some mint and some lemon, and it's just like a kind of sensory mm. cure almost just mm. to inhale those ingredients and to escape from the bleeps and the demands and the people asking you why you haven't met this or that deadline. It's just cooking is we need it more than ever i think we need it for mental health and i think children it's nothing gives them confidence quite like learning how to make something for the first time they love it now yeah. talking about children i'd love to talk to you about taste ed yes. i've been following it on twitter for Thank quite you. a while now and i love love reading the descriptions that that kids have about whether it's smelling something or tasting something or the texture of something. So you're the co-founder and we were talking before we started recording that you're, it's very much for your passion project. Um, so taste ed is basically, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's basically about delivering taste education to children. So they grow up with a positive, you know, actually a real food relationship. Where did that idea come from? So it's originally a Scandinavian idea. So in, in one of my books, first bite, I, I kept thinking, well, it's great we teach kids how to cook. Well, actually, most schools don't do enough of that. But why is nobody teaching them how to eat? Like, it suddenly struck me that you look at either pickiness on the one hand or children just having a really limited palate. And why was nobody addressing that? And then I came across this thing, Sapara, and I realised actually they are doing it, just not in Britain. So in Finland and Sweden, and it actually started in France as something called Le Classe du Goût, which is just like taste Classic lessons. Taste, yeah. Exactly. So we felt that Taste Ed was quite a good translation of Le Classe du Goût. And the idea is just reconnect children with the five senses and reconnect them with food, just as you've said. So that's where the idea came from. We were So I co-founded it with an amazing head teacher called Jason O'Rourke, who runs this school in Lincolnshire called Washingborough Academy, where the whole day is about food. And even though Ofsted don't necessarily reward you for that, for him, it's so important that his children should know that there's more than one kind of apple. So the first thing he did when he arrived at that school was plant a heritage apple orchard. And he'll, and you'll go there and the corridors will be full of these ripening tomatoes kind of getting a bit of sun and <laughs> oh, boxes smell must be amazing. yes it is and then you meet the chef and you see he's got all of these books on sourdough and he's got jars of things fermenting and so for jason food is it comes back to your thing about priorities i think you for most head teachers it's not a priority for jason it absolutely was but he felt even with Everything he was doing, cooking projects, growing projects, there was something missing because some of the kids just wouldn't connect with the food. So he had there's some story he tells about how he was trying to do or one of his teachers was trying to do a lesson on apples. And one boy just crossed his arms, turned his back and said, I don't like healthy food. Like oh. The whole category of healthy food was something he wouldn't engage with. Because what did he consider healthy food? Well, clearly the apples were something healthy. Mm. And his, so they were just off-putting and that had clearly come from his mum and dad. So this is why Jason and I both believe Taste Ed is so needed because on the one hand you've got kind of... It, it doesn't all... Sometimes people say it's all about money. I don't think it is all about money. Mm. You've got these... I see these 
quite affluent middle class kids whose parents are working every hour, who don't have time. They're in after school clubs and breakfast clubs and they're never sitting down and they're just being given food on the go. Mm. And then a lot of it is also deprivation. And you see fa- you know, fruit is so expensive. Vegetables mm. are so expensive. And if you haven't got good cooking equipment. So our vision is just that every child deserves an opportunity to have learnt what we call food literacy. So like you should have been exposed to a range of delicious fruits and vegetables. And whether you then enjoy them is totally up to you. Mm. We always say no one has to try and no one has to like. And that, again, it comes from the Swedish version of Sapporo, which we were taught by this amazing woman called Stina Algotsson. And the idea is you've got to respect if a child really hates something, it's no good telling them they should like broccoli. That doesn't work. That gets you nowhere. Mm. But also, it's kind of really inhuman. Like, yeah. I feel you've we've all got to be allowed our own likes and dislikes. But if you can create this safe space, they just relax. When you say to them, no one has to like and no one has to try, it's like, oh, okay. And then they do like and they do try. Like, mm. we'll, And we'll say to them, like, if we're doing tomatoes, Half of them just go crazy for the tomatoes and they'll say, they'll write things. And then we always get them to write and talk. So again, it sort of comes back to what we're talking about with food and writing, that it's an amazing literacy tool because the minute you put food in someone's hands, even someone who thinks, who's labelled themselves as not good at writing, they almost can't stop themselves Mm. because they're so excited. They'll write things down like that delightfully the tomato exploded with juice in my mouth or... um, Almost our top whenever that we're endlessly using is somebody with, looked at a strawberry and said, the strawberry is a rocket and all the seeds are windows and the leaves are fire. And it was just like, that's a poem right there. How did, how did you think of that? But with the tomatoes, the juice, they either love that juicy seediness mm. or it's quite threatening. But if it's quite threatening, what we say is if you dislike something, try and say, I don't like it because... So there's a reason why, not just because I... It's healthy. Exactly. Not just because, or even that would be a reason. I mean, that that would be okay to say, Mm. but it'd be more helpful if you could link it to your senses. So we're always used to trying to say, how does it, there are whole lessons on listening to food. We don't usually categorise food as loud and quiet, but just like, do you prefer a loud, crunchy apple or a quiet peach? And the similes they came up with a peach were just amazing. I don't think I could have really described, you know, I've been a food writer for a long time, but if somebody said, what does a peach sound like? I just go silent, don't really know, um, maybe a bit squelchy. But the children, one of them wrote, the peach sounded quiet and shy. So I thought it was great. And somebody oh. else, it was like, what was that? Um, like a soft pillow. It actually must be really inspiring as well. It is. Are you taking notes to use some of these for the letter? We we now get them to... So when I started doing this, we were mostly... I mean, Jason and his school at Washington, they do it throughout the school. But both of us, and I have been piloting it at a school in Cambridge, we were focusing on reception kids who... It's quite... When you're four, just to write a whole sentence is a challenge. Mm. So we might... Some of them wrote things like the tomato was nice and that's about as much as they can do. But now we've been trialling it with year sevens in a mm. secondary school and then year fours. And the year fours were the best of all, I think, because they're aged, um, how old is, is year it, four? Is eight, eight to nine, yeah. eight to nine. And they've still got this completely free, wild imagination. Mm. But at the same time, they're able to write more than one sentence. And so yeah, some of the stuff they've 
got and we've you know we've kept all of the photocopies of all their work because it's just beautiful yeah is food education for kids something which you think has always been needed or do you think it's needed more now because of the pressures that we talked about earlier and kind of the sheer amount of processed food and people not being as aware of where their food comes from do you think that it's more of an issue now Mm. I think it's definitely needed more now I think it's probably been needed for a long time in Britain I mean something I kept trying to think about when I was writing the way we eat now was the extent to which we've moved away from the land but in Britain we moved away from the land a long time ago we had our industrial revolution really early so that experience of smelling something touching something pulling a carrot from the ground Mm. unless you had a parent that had an allotment which lots of people still do and that's fabulous we weren't necessarily connected. And also another way, you know, I, I sometimes have given versions of this talk in Spain and then people will say, well, we kind of have taste ed every time we go food shopping because we take our kids to the food market and you're looking at the tomatoes, you're smelling the peaches. And it's true. I think if that old fashioned way that people shopped where you actually, all of the produce was mm. naked to your gaze without yeah. plastic. Mm. So to come back to your question, yes, I do think it's more needed now because if somebody's living in a house where, you know, I do online grocery shopping. It all, all arrives time, in bags. and It arrives in bags. Yeah. It's under plastic. You're not taught to use your senses. Your parents probably aren't even think. You know, everyone's in a rush. Mm. I think it's desperately needed. And we've met um, 12-year-olds who've never had a raw tomato before. You think, how did you reach the age of 12? And that should be a basic element in somebody's education. I know Jason, as a head teacher, feels really strongly, we should be judging ourselves on this. We should be Mm. thinking that is a bit like not having reached a basic level of literacy. So based on what you've been saying now, I've grown up in Australia and to be quite honest, it's it's really not all that different in terms of how we're educated about these things. But I'm going to make the assumption that there's not really any provision in the education system here for for food education in schools. Do you think that's just, again, a priorities thing? And do you think that there should be like some of the things that we think about and go, okay, well, Sure, um, learning algebra is really helpful, but actually, I wish somebody learned taught somebody had taught me how to do other things with maths so that I could take yeah. it into the real world. Is there a, a need for that real world? I think there's food a education? huge need for real world life skills, practical food education. I mean, it, it's as with lots of things in our education system, really variable. There are schools out there, not just Jason's, who are doing incredible fabulous things with cooking there's a whole network of schools who are part of the soil association food for life scheme where you can only get certified if you've got a certain number of cooking lessons a certain number of school gardens other projects like where kids go to farms so there are there are fantastic things going on and there are schools who are really switched on technically under the national curriculum um often when i give talks people put their hand up and say oh it's such a shame there's no cooking in schools now that's not true. There is cooking in schools. Under the primary requ- requirements, it comes under D&T, design and technology, which I find a bit strange. I'm not sure yeah. if... And it's got this line, which basically to me feels a bit like hot air, where it says, cooking is one of the great expressions of human creativity. 
you think, wow, yes. Well, let people do it then. In that case, mm. give schools a budget for doing it. Give them kitchens, give them equipment. And that's what it will come down to. So my dad, um, he's retired now, but he was an art teacher. And mm. over his kind of 30-year teaching career, his kind of you know classroom got smaller his groups got smaller mm. and then it was just for a level and the amount of um kind of resources because the budgets were being cut and that will fall exactly into the same pot as cooking. it does yeah i mean that's partly why i mean with taste ed we're kind of trying to say to schools i mean there are some schools who desperately see the need as we do for reconnecting children with food and changing their tastes for the better but if you say you were a school that didn't fully sign up to that, we've designed all the lessons so they deliver core literacy. So that's what schools get judged on. But and actually, you can do the two together. Like even I mean, Jason, the head teacher, used to kind of one of his bugbears. A lot of teachers hate this: is that children are now expected to know these stupid technical phrases like fronted adverbials. And I didn't even know what a fronted adverbial was. I have no idea what no. a fronted adverbial is. So it means is. like, nope. it, it, it means <laughs> when you put an adverb at the start of a sentence, so you might say, annoyingly, well, this is a taste-ed example, because I then wanted to prove to Jason you could do both together. So I got the children to do lots of lessons with fronted adverbials. You say, annoyingly, I didn't like the lemon because it was too sour. Delightfully, comma, the tomato exploded in my mouth. But I, d- I agree with him. It's completely ridiculous. It's also that we're... not the way that most people no. speak or write. No. Oh, I Forget children. Frustratingly, quite often. No, no, no. no. I mean, you might use frustratingly, but you wouldn't talk about a fronted adverbial, would you? No. no. Nobody talks about a fronted... I mean, I'm a writer. I don't talk about fronted adverbials. I had to have it explained. I had to read in quite a lot of detail. So out That's, of touch. That says a lot, doesn't it? It says a lot about what they think is important and what's actually important. So kind of, yeah, our little joke is that you can teach food and get them to produce incredible fronted adverbials. I don't <laughs> actually think fronted adverbials matter that much, but it is there definitely is something quite amazing that happens with language and food mm. together, and I think that does matter. I think it does matter that lots of kids have labelled themselves as less able. And I've... Mm. So I'm the long-term aim is I and mean, we've got now a series of schools who are signing up to do taste ed and get the curriculum and implement it themselves using their teachers and that's the aim it shouldn't be done by some outsider like me I've just been piloting it to find out how to do it and how to write the curriculum but when I've come in the classroom the teachers I'm working with always know what the kids level is and I don't yeah and I've often thought wow this person's the best in the class they're incredible because the stuff they're coming up with and then you see their written work you think oh like you're not somebody that necessarily has the best handwriting or can even finish a sentence but the stuff you were saying when we were talking about food was just great Mm. and I I this is a bugbear of mine actually about the education system we don't all learn the same way and it's so frustrating that I think it is changing to some degree, but it's so frustrating that they're trying to teach everyone the same way. Mm. I'm a doer. So you have to tell me I can read something in theory. I have to go and do that thing a couple of times for it to really hit home. You know, yes. just to sit there in class yes. and look at the board. Everyone is different. It, it, it can't. I, it completely know, disengages you. And I think many, many people fit into your category. There should, mm. It's just learning by doing. I mean, one of our, things that we quote a lot in taste ed is this is a manual can 
saying where he says all of our knowledge all human knowledge starts with the senses mm. and I think it's true you kind of you know what you smell you know what you see and we've kind of always been told that's not important just kind of shut yourself off memorize another fronted adverbial learn another maths equation um <laughs> repeat something I'll be sure to use them in my job next week <laughs> <laughs> now just the last quick question when outside of school, so for parents who want to get involved and who want to actually encourage their kids to have a positive relationship mm-hmm. food, what are a couple of easy things that they can do? So markets and getting them to try yes. tomato. Take them food shopping that, and actually say, what would you like to buy? Um, that would be one. Another one which is really, really simple. And so I, my youngest child was very picky and I kind of wish I'd got involved in Taste Ed when he was much younger, but he's now got much, much better. And we do do these activities together at home. But just like if somebody doesn't want to try something, say, well, would you like to try it by smelling? And I think it, it just wouldn't have occurred to me when my kids were younger. I was so desperate for them to finish that plate of vegetables mm. that I would just say, well, just smell it and put it back down. That's still trying. And I, I think that's awesome. it takes all the pressure off everyone because it's just like as a as a parent, you're kind of eaten up with pressure and guilt and anxiety mm-hmm. a lot of the time or with the best will in the world you often are but just to think oh my child smelt something that's good i can feel good about myself they can feel good they've made that step they've made that step exactly and also the really simple experience again this comes down to smelling like if you wanted to teach them where does flavor happen this seems to be a revelation to most of the kids we meet they think it's all in the mouth they don't realize the nose plays a part so one day when you're eating dinner just kind of pinch your nose and eat your food and ask them what they taste which they probably think is quite fun as well it's quite funny because you talk a bit like this and then (laughs) and then your mouth i mean there's the comments the children made and tasted where you unpinch your nose and it's like my mouth flooded with flavor and it's and it's true did anyone else as a kid if you had to eat something you didn't want to you'd block your nose while you were eating or drinking it sometimes that was a natural thing i don't remember anyone telling me to do that but i just knew that because it's the senses again so i met a girl in one of the classes who said and this was like her family clearly were almost doing taste head where if she really didn't like something she'd block her nose block her ears and close her eyes <laughs> so all she got was texture <laughs> and then maybe she didn't like the texture and she can just stir it up into a big yeah. slosh a big uh, yeah. bowl of slosh right thank you so much for chatting with us no, today we can keep going you. for ages and one day there may be another chance if you'll have us again um, to talk to you about some of the other things that you do and have a chat about the wider thoughts you have around food and myth busting because I think that's really interesting and I really like Swindled so thank you if you enjoyed this episode you'll no doubt like some of our others so please do take the time to listen to our back catalogue which you can find on any podcast platform you use or our website at thesource.com if you really enjoyed it consider supporting us through Patreon in return for helping us make the podcast even better, we're offering special behind-the-scenes recordings and more. Take a look at patreon.com slash atthesource for more information. Lastly, we're on Twitter and Instagram as at the source. We're sharing visuals and talking food. Come and join us. <laughs>